So, what was for you the biggest news of the last week? You know, it probably depends on your perspective, it depends on your experience, it depends on where you look. For some of you guys, you might be really switched on to the world, and you might be really dialed into what's going on in Egypt right now. Some of you might be more domestically oriented and might be really wrapped up in what's happening um, with immigration reform. Some of you may have a little narrower focus or may be on the Instagram and uh, noticed this week that Mrs. Carter got a new haircut and completely blew up the whole Instagram world. Or you might be very focused on um, the greatest music band in the world, One Direction, and you might be really wound up that one of the One Directioners has decided to play football for Doncaster Rovers in England. See, what you think is the biggest news probably depends a lot on who you are and what your stories are. So for you, what, what's the biggest story that you've experienced? What's the biggest thing that you've experienced along the way? You know, for us, it could be something big. It could be something kind of sad. It could be something that... Um, you know, is a really happy thing, and it could be a big milepost. Or it could just be something that's even kind of lame, like me, where I've spent now an entire week not losing track of something that I should never lose track of to begin with. That was probably the biggest thing for me in recent weeks, was going a whole week without losing track of my keys. But again, what matters? What matters to you? What matters most? See, the thing is, is that if I was to try to figure out that for each of you, I, I couldn't do that. And if you were just looking at me, you'd have a hard time figuring out what matters most just by looking at us. Because it might be something that's huge, of world import, and it might be something that's really narrow. I mean, if you've ever had a sore tooth, you know that just a little tiny thing in your mouth matters more than almost anything else on earth for the time that your tooth is sore, right? So what does matter? What stories matter the most? And here's the thing, is that these things happen all at once. That my stories and your stories and what's going on in Egypt and what's going on with Beyonce's hair and all of those things are happening all at once. And as we interact with each other, we make choices about which stories we decide are going to matter that how much of my story is going to matter to you and how much of your story is going to matter to me. So some of you may not be all concerned about the future of One Direction, but I'll guarantee you that there are a number of 11-year-old girls who have had sleepless nights ever since the future of One Direction has been put up into uncertainty. So... What do we do with this? And how do we understand which stories are the most important? This morning, we're going to look at three connected stories in the Gospel of Mark. Um, It's the second part of the New Testament. It's the second of the four Gospels, the stories of the life of Jesus. And these happen in sort of the second big story arc of the Gospel of Mark. The way that Mark writes his story, led by the Holy Spirit to organize it this way, is that there's kind of three big story arcs, and this is the second of the three. 
And one of the things that's very characteristic of Mark's storytelling style is that he likes to group things in threes. And so the third part of this story, and we're going to look briefly at all three, but really land on the third one. The third one is kind of the climax of this. And what you're going to see is it's going to be rather surprising where Mark ends up and where Jesus ends up in terms of what is the most important of these three stories. Um, You're going to see Jesus do amazing stuff. But the most important thing that Jesus does is something that's rather simple that's completely within range of all of us. And it's something that God calls us all of us to do and that we can do right now simply by sitting still. So where are we going with this? The story begins with Jesus and his disciples getting on a boat and crossing the Sea of Galilee. Um, The area that Jesus grew up in was the west side of the big lake called the Sea of Galilee that's in northern Israel. Um, And the east side of the lake was populated almost entirely by Gentiles, by non-Jews, by the people that weren't God's people. And so it's kind of a big deal in the Gospel of Mark every time Jesus crosses the sea. This is the way that Mark shows us that everything that Jesus came to do for the Israelites, for the Jews, he came to do for Gentiles, for non-Gentiles as well. And so what's happening in, in the story is up to this point, Jesus' basic identity has been set for us. He has, he's a great teacher. He has the ability to heal. And because of those two things together, the authority with which he's teaching and healing, the religious officials, the Jewish officials, are now pretty unhappy with him. And in fact, at the end of the previous episode, they're now plotting with the people connected to the Romans to try to do away with Jesus. So you might think that he's actually doing this to escape, but Jesus is, is way ahead of them. And so he goes to cross the lake to go to the other side. But while they are crossing the lake, a huge storm comes up. And it blows the sails off the boat, and the the water gets up, and Jesus' disciples in the boat with him, who for a lot of them were fishermen, who were experienced boatmen, are really going crazy because the boat, they're about to go down. Now, that would be a scary thing for anybody. I don't know if any of us is a strong enough swimmer that if our boat went down three-quarters of a mile from shore that we could swim to shore safely in a storm. But for these guys, there's all kinds of other resonances that are really key that, that Mark wants us to be able to see here. There's a number of echoes in this story to the story of Jonah. And then this is also very connected to when Israel crossed the sea, the Red Sea, along the way. See, for people in the ancient world, water, the sea, a a stormy sea is more than just a bunch of waves. It represents chaos. It represents the ultimate uncontrollable force that people can never possibly mess with. So it's hard for us to get this because we don't project that same importance to the sea. But to people in the ancient world... The sea represents the ultimate thing that cannot be controlled. And so they're not just afraid that they're going to drown. It's like the very worst thing in the world has come up and grabbed a hold of them. And so the disciples are really freaking out. And so Jesus, though, is not. In a really nice little detail, Mark tells us that Jesus is in the back of the boat and he's asleep. In fact, he's so relaxed, he's sleeping on a cushion. I like that little detail that he gives us. 
And the disciples wake up and they say to him, and I don't think in a particularly polite or relaxed voice, they say to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Um, I think the teacher here is a little sarcastic at this point. Yeah, I got a great teacher, but it doesn't do us any good if we're at the bottom of the sea. So they are just completely freaked out. And they cannot believe that Jesus manages to be asleep in the midst of this. It's like they've seen different movies, and they don't understand why Jesus can be this relaxed. Well, Jesus wakes up and very calmly rebukes. I don't know how you rebuke water and a storm, but he does. He rebukes the storm, and immediately the wind stops, the water goes flat, and they're saved. And at the climax of this first little story, the disciples have an amazing response. They're actually terrified. They're even more terrified now than they were during the storm. Because storms they knew. Somebody with the ability to just speak to a storm and make it stop, they didn't have any experience with that. And so they are freaked out. This is a really strong word for being scared. Terrified. And they say to each other, look at what it says there. They say, who is this? I mean, these are guys that have left everything to follow Jesus. So they probably think they have a pretty good idea who Jesus is at this point. And now they realize we have no idea who Jesus is. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. End of episode one. They move on. And when they arrive on the other side of the lake, like they're meant to, they're met by a guy who would scare the heck out of anybody. This guy has super long hair. He's not wearing any clothes. He's screaming. He's yelling. And, and sadly, the reason for this is the guy has been controlled by demons for some years. Um, and it was so bad that the people in the town... They would try to chain him up periodically, just try to control him for his own sake along the way. But he would break out of the chains and run around and hurt people and hurt himself. And so Jesus and his disciples had arrived, and you can imagine the people here in Gerasenes, the name of the city where they're at. They're freaked out. You know, this, this major celebrity from across the lake has just arrived, and now their local scary guy is out there screaming at Jesus right now. He shouted to Jesus at the top of his voice. He says this. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Now, if you've read these stories much in the Gospels, you know that this happens a lot. That when Jesus encounters somebody who is controlled by a demon or or demons, the person or the demons inside the person kind of shout at Jesus. And they ask him all kinds of questions. And, and the thing is, is, is the text never tells us exactly why this is the case. It, there are several instances where it describes where, how Jesus encounters people who are being controlled by demons. But it never actually explains to us how this happens or why it happens or why it happens in some cases and not some others. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that's supposed to know about this stuff, and I've given some attention to this, and I still can't figure it out. And it's not because it's like a calculus problem I have no idea how to solve, but just because, well, it's because this story is not about the demons. This is not their story. This is a story about Jesus. 
And this is a story about a man who's been suffering under the control of demons. And so the biblical storytellers, when they tell these stories, they're not terribly interested in demons and how it actually works. What they're interested in is telling us stories like this one of how it turns out. So Jesus is encountering this guy, and this guy's shouting at him. And the story goes on, and Jesus asks him, so, so what's your name? And this time it appears that the demon is speaking rather than the man. And I don't know if Jesus meant to ask the guy and the demon answers for him or what. But the demon says this. It says, my name is Legion. That's a Roman word for like a really big group because we're many. So Jesus now knows that there are a bunch of demons inside of this guy. So Jesus says, all right, that's it. You guys are done here. I'm going to cast you out. And the demons say, well, we'd rather not die. So could you, instead of just casting us out to die, there's a herd of pigs over here. Could you send us into the pigs? And again, I don't know why Jesus says yes to this. You know, he could have said, no, no, demons. Those are nice pigs. I don't want to do anything to them. But he says, all right. So he does. And so he goes to the man and cast the demons out of the man. And as Jesus had said, they go into the pigs. The pigs, not having been consulted about whether the demons could come into them or not, are unhappy about this. And they're so unhappy, they run off of a cliff or down a steep hill, and they drown themselves in the sea. So now this is a happy ending for the man, and it's a sad ending for the pigs. Okay, I'm not quite sure what to do with that still. Um, I, 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 I'm, I mean, I have a certain amount of affection for pigs. I enjoyed carnitas this week several times. Um, which is not all that good of an ending for the pigs either. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to do with this exactly. But the people of the town don't know what to do with this either. Okay, They are freaking out. Just like Jesus' disciples were frightened when he stilled the waves. These guys had seen this guy for years. Years being thrown around, able to break chains because of these demons. And now the text tells us the guy is completely in his right mind. He's dressed, he's calm, and he's there with Jesus. And the people in the town come up to Jesus and they're like, leave, okay? This is too much for us. We are terribly frightened. Please get in your boat, go back to the other side. We're really glad our friend is okay but this is too much for us. We don't have any way to understand this. Okay? And Jesus is like, all right, I'll, I'll go back. But before he goes, he talks to the man who had been demonized, who's now okay. And he gives him a mission. Because you are now okay, here's what I want you to do. He says this. He says, go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy for you. What Jesus does, and this is really interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, um, whenever people say you're the son of God, Jesus always tries to keep them quiet in the beginnings. This is the first time he tells somebody, it's okay to go tell them who I am. He's on the other side of the lake. These aren't Jews, so it's not as complicated. But notice the key thing. Yeah, obviously this is a measure of God's power. But what he really wants these people to know in Gerasenes in the whole area here on the other side of the lake is that this is a sign of the Lord's mercy. And so then Jesus and his friends go back 
to the other side. And now we get to the big story. So up to this point, what have we seen? We've seen that God is interested in showing through Jesus and showing in the story that Jesus has power. And for the folks in the frame of the story, Jesus now has power over the completely uncontrollable things. Demons were beyond people's control, and just with a word, Jesus got rid of these demons and sent them into a bunch of pigs. And these people lived in a world where the sea represented the ultimate uncontrollable. And again, with just a word, Jesus had taken care of that. So we now know, just like when the Lord took Israel out of Egypt, which demonstrates in Exodus that the Lord has power to do anything he wants. What drives the rest of Exodus is, how is he going to use that power? And that's exactly what's happening here in the third and and climactic episode of this this three-part story in Mark. What's he going to do with this power? How is he going to use it? Well, what happens is when they land back on the Jewish side of the lake, one of the synagogue leaders here, a man named Jairus, and the fact that his name is Jairus, that's a Greek name, that means, or a Roman name, that means he's really an elite guy. He's a Jewish man, but he has a Greek name. It means he's probably super wealthy, super elite. He comes, and when he falls, saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, what's the deal? It says he pleads for him. He says, my daughter, my little girl, we learn later that she's 12, is dying. Now, remember I mentioned a few minutes ago that when Jesus had left the Jewish side of the lake a few years previously, um, or a few days previously, sorry, I'm having trouble with time today. Jesus had previously left that side of the lake. The Jewish officials were conspiring to have him killed. So this is a big breakthrough. It was almost unredeemably broken. And have you ever been in that case where, where you've been in serious conflict with somebody? And once you're done just being mad at them and proving to everybody around you how wrong they are and how right you are, once you're done with that, and you start to think about, how can I fix this? That's hard, right? How, how am I going to build bridges back to these people that I'm conflicted with? And what a bonus, what a blessing when the person that you're conflicted with takes the initiative and says, let's fix this. And that's what's happening here. See, Jairus was part of the circles of people that were out to kill and get rid of Jesus. And now one of those guys is willing to come and actually fall down at Jesus. And he pleads with him. And not only does he say that, he gives a complete statement almost of faith. He says, look, come and put your hands on her and she will be healed and lived. I know that you have the power to do this, Jesus. So, I don't know if Jesus is thinking this. We'll see in a minute his disciples clearly are. That this is a chance for us to, to change the story. And the triumph of this three-part thing is going to be, now that Jesus has shown his power and authority, even the leaders are going to come around and say, yeah, we want to be your guy, Jesus. We want to fix this. We don't want to kill you anymore. Let's fix all of this. And so, as they leave the shore, because Jairus lives a little bit in town, are a little bit away from the shore, there's big crowds because Jesus is a celebrity now and they're pushing their way through the crowds. And you could probably imagine Jesus' disciples like, yeah, we're on it now, man. This guy can handle the sea. He can handle demons. Now we're going to fix the problem with our leaders. It's all good. And as they're pushing their way through a crowd, you know, Jesus is getting jostled by all kinds of people. But yet somehow 
as he's pushing his way through the crowd, it's like, you know, if we were watching this in a movie, the camera would pan in on one woman looking at herself. And that one woman we see would probably have old, broken down clothes and a really troubled look on her face. This woman had a particularly difficult issue. There's a woman there in the crowd, Mark tells us, that had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. Almost certainly what her issue was is there was some kind of menstrual issue that had been unstoppable for 12 years. Now, there's a bunch of dumb misogynistic jokes that I could make here that I won't at this point. Um, But here's what's going on in their particular setting. Besides just the physical discomfort of this, in Israel's culture, when a woman is menstruating, that makes her ritually unclean, which means you can't go to worship. It means that you can't sit and share a meal with other people who are clean. It means that if you sit on something, it has to be cleansed. It either has to be richly washed or burned. It means that sometimes you can't even be in the same room with other people. She had been this way for 12 years. 12 years. And you know how this goes, too. That whenever somebody is suffering something a long time, the people around their compassion starts to run out and they start to think, what did she do that caused this? So imagine where this poor woman has been for the last 12 years. Now, she tried to do some things about it. Um, Mark tells us that she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And if you have some time, some some scholars have, have guessed at some of what the doctors would have done. And it's awful, really bad stuff. That would have happened to her. And she had spent all the money that she had trying to get cured. But to no avail. Instead of getting better, she just got worse. But this woman saw something in Jesus and thought, you know, this guy Jesus can help me. And she was so used to staying at distance from everybody that she doesn't even want, you know, that Jairus thought that Jesus could come and lay hands on her and everything would be okay. This woman doesn't even dare to hope that Jesus will lay hands on her. What this woman hopes is simply, she says, if I could just touch him, if I could just touch him, the edge of his, his jacket, I'll be cured. And so she does. She comes up through the crowd. And again, remember, this is a big crowd. Everybody's jostling. And she touches the edge of Jesus' jacket and then walks away. Somehow, Jesus notices. And he says, who touched my clothes? Now, his disciples have their second incredulous response in so many days. They look at the crowd. They see all the jostling around. And they say to Jesus, they say, look, there's people crowding around you. And yet you can ask, who touched me? Now, this is a little crazy, you know, that what Jesus is asking. He's probably been touched by 100 people in the last 40 feet that he's walked since he went from the edge of the lake to where they are right now. So it is a little crazy. But there's something else underlying. 
the disciples don't want anything to slow them down because they're on their way to Jairus' daughter. They're on their way to the climax of these three stories, that the power that Jesus showed in the lake and the power that he showed with the demonized man, Jesus is going to show at Jairus' house, and now they're going to be famous everywhere in Israel. They're going to fix the problem with the leaders. They're going to fix this little girl, and it's all going to be good. They don't have time to go through the crowd and wonder who touched you. But again, Jesus seems to know a different story. He's watched different movies than his disciples have. And so Jesus doesn't take their advice. Instead, it said Jesus kept looking around. Not that Jesus was joined by his disciples. He's doing this himself. And he keeps looking around to see who had touched him. In Luke's version of this story, he says Jesus had felt power go out of him. And Jesus wanted to know who this was. Because I think Jesus knew that there was more than just power here that needed to happen. So the woman somehow figures this out. And so she decides, I'm going to go up and talk to Jesus and tell him about what happened. And so Mark tells us that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, that she was cured, she, she, it, the flow of blood had stopped, that she was okay. So she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear. Because remember, this woman had been literally untouchable for 12 years, had been the person everybody had avoided for 12 years, she came and she told him the whole story. Now, you can imagine what this was like. I'll bet you when she told Jesus the whole story, it was more than, hey, Jesus, I was sick and now I'm okay. Thank you. That wasn't the whole story. I don't know how long it took Five minutes, ten minutes, a couple hours. But Jesus stood there. Even though this girl was sick, and they were on their way to somewhere super important, that at least as far as Jesus' disciples were concerned, was going to be the answer to their problems and was going to launch Jesus' ministry into an even bigger format. Jesus stood there and listened to her whole story. Her whole story. And, and you can imagine the disciples tapping their watches or looking at their phones, or they didn't have those, so they were like pointing to the sky and saying, Hey, Jesus, the sun was here, now it's here, you know, or, or however they were telling time. But Jesus stood and listened to her whole story. Now, the disciples don't know this, but this is the climax of the three stories when Jesus stays and listens to this woman's story. Because ultimately, that was what healed her. Sure, the blood going away was a key part of it. But I don't think this woman would have been okay if Jesus had not stayed and let her tell her story. That Jesus had power to do whatever he wanted to do at this point. And the thing that Jesus most wanted to do was to stop everything and let this woman tell her story. Because Jesus knew that this was the climax of this episode. Now, he really does heal her, and in a very kind way, finishes by saying to her, daughter, which was a sign of affection. You know, when somebody who's been ostracized by everybody, you use a a family term, that's a very kind thing for Jesus to say. Says, your faith has healed you, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, it was far more than the blood. It was the suffering that was the worst. 
And it was telling her story that was the ultimate part of her healing. Now, while this was going on, the other story kept going on. And word gets back to Jairus, who is with Jesus. Because not only are the disciples there saying, hey, Jesus, let's go. Come on, come on, come on. But Jairus is there, knowing his daughter was really sick. And while Jesus was taking five minutes, ten minutes, maybe a couple hours to listen to this woman's story, word got back that Jairus' daughter had died. Everybody is freaked out by this, except for Jesus. He's like, no, no. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. Like, no, no, dude, this is not sleep. She's dead. Dead. Jesus is like, no, no, it's okay. He gets to the house, and he goes in to see the girl. And without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of this and that, he just goes to her and says two words to her in her native language. He says to her, Talita kum, which in Aramaic, which is the language that she spoke and probably Jesus spoke as well, means little girl, get up. And she did. She was fine. She was okay. She was raised from the dead. So the fact that Jesus took time to listen to that woman didn't matter. This girl was fine too. But this girl was not really the focus of the story. It was that woman and that story that was the focus. So again, in this particular episode, Jesus has power. He has power to do anything he wants. He has power over any bearer, barrier that these people could imagine. And I don't know how many of you are really worried about the sea and demons. So whatever you imagine to be the uncontrollable thing in your life, Jesus demonstrates in these stories that he has power over that. But the question when any, somebody has power is how are you going to use it? And what we see in this story, the way Mark set this up with the climax of this story, is if you want to know what the most essential use of Jesus' power was, it was kindness. That the most powerful thing that Jesus does in this series of stories is he stops and he listens and he lets this woman tell his whole, her whole story. That was the most powerful thing that Jesus did was to show this woman kindness. Now, what do we do with this? How does this work? This isn't terribly hard, but as I was thinking about this, there was a particular writer who really helped me out. You can see he's a writer It's because he's in a moody picture. See how it's black and white, and he's kind of down there. He writes um, short stories, and um, his name is George Saunders. I'd actually read some of his stuff and didn't realize it until I read this. And around this week, um, he gave a commencement address at a university in New York this year, and um, it started to get out, and it's become really popular. And I, I read it this week, and it really brought together what I was start, trying to get a hold of, of the power of kindness. And so I, I want to just quote a couple things that he said. I mean, I could have just ripped him off and told you this as if I'd made it up myself, and you'd be really impressed, but I don't, I don't want to be that guy. So, um, so I, I'm going to quote some things from Saunders. And you're going to see that where Saunders was going really intersected well with what was happening with Jesus and his disciples. Saunders says this. In a lot of commencement speeches, um, you talk a lot about making a difference and not wanting to fail. And, and, and you talk a lot, too, about um, just wanting to make sure that what you do counts. 
and that you live your life with no regrets. Most of us have sat through at least one, even high school speeches are like this, but there's usually live your life so that you have no regrets and live your life. You guys got everything. You don't fail. Go do great stuff. That's almost always the case. But he used this phrase that just kind of haunted me for a couple days. And then I read the whole thing and it was brilliant. He says, he says this, and he's in his mid fifties. He says, at this point in my life, as I look back, he says, here's what I regret the most. What I regret the most are failures of kindness. Now, this is a guy who had had, you know, some significant failures in his life and some things to regret. He even went swimming in a river full of monkey poop and was sick for a year and a half. And he says, looking back, he doesn't even regret that all that much. But what he really regrets were his failures of kindness. And that phrase, a failure of kindness, has just been kind of echoing in my mind. And as I was reading through this passage to get ready for today... I realized that that's what Jesus didn't fail at. You know, he could have healed this woman and walked on and have still failed because he didn't show her the kindness of listening. So, so why is it so hard for us to do that? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I would guess that we could go down to Huntington Beach right now and tell the waves to go flat. And we could probably pray a lot too. And they're not going to go flat. And I don't know, I've never cast a demon out of somebody. I, I think God gives us the authority to do that, but it's not been my experience. But we do all have the power to show kindness, to listen. So, so why, is that, why is that hard? Saunders says there's, there's two things that we believe that we know aren't true, but we believe them anyway and often live our lives according to them. The first one is, is that he says that we believe that we, I, am central to the universe. That the earth doesn't spin around the polar axis, it spins around me. Okay? And, and here's the way he explains it. He says, he says, what we believe is that our personal story is the main and most interesting story, and really the only story along the way. It's so easy to get caught up into our lives and what our lives are about and what we have to do and the responsibilities that we have that we just have no space and no time for anybody else's story. And it feels like time given to somebody else's story is somehow stolen from us. And that is exactly what was going on between Jesus and his disciples. See, Jesus knew where this was going, and Jesus knew that the most powerful and important thing he could do to li- was to listen to this woman's story. But the disciples had their own agenda. They had their own narrative. It's like, man, we can't listen to this woman. I'm glad she's not bleeding anymore, but we got Jairus and his daughter. We got bigger fish to fry here, Jesus. Can we keep going? You know, can we keep going along the way? Remember what the disciples said when Jesus said, who touched me? They were like, Dude, come on. We've got other things going on. We can't stop for this. But remember, that's not what Jesus did. The other part of it that Saunders says is the way we get stuck is that we believe that we are separate from the universe. I mean, we know we're not, but somehow we believe that our lives are our lives and there's somehow, it's an option of whether we can connect to others along the way. And, and And he puts it in a really great way. He says this, he says, he says, look, this is how we view the world. He says, there's us, okay? And then out there, there's all that other junk, all the other stuff. There's dogs 
and there's swing sets, and there's the state of Nebraska, and low-hanging clouds, and, oh, yeah, other people, too, okay? Now, we know this isn't true, and yet we can live minutes, hours, days, even weeks living as if that's true, can't we? Isn't it easy to do that along the way? But the good news of this story and what Mark really wanted us to get is that Jesus didn't do this. Besides saying, who touched me? Remember what he told us? That Jesus kept looking to find out, to see who had touched him along the way. Jesus had the option, too, of knowing that his story was the most important story and that everything was external to him. But instead, with all the power that God had for him, and that God can have for us as well, Jesus knew that his power was going to find its greatest completion in listening to this woman's story. In listening. And so what did Jesus do? When he found the woman, he stayed and let her tell him the whole story of her life. So what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? You know, sometimes going forward after we've looked at the scriptures, complicated and it requires a lot of different moving pieces. This one doesn't. So here's the deal. The same power that was at work at Jesus can and should be at work in our lives. And maybe someday we will still storms and we will cast out demons. But here's something I guarantee that is within reach of all of us within the very next few minutes when we walk out of here, is that God's power is shown its greatness when we're kind to one another. So if you want to be a powerful person in this world, if you want to display the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and the new life that you have in Christ, be kind. And what's one of the best ways to be kind to someone? Listen, there's somebody in your circle. It may take a minute. It may take two minutes. It may take a couple hours. But there's somebody in your circle that you can give the gift of letting them tell you their whole story. And when that happens, God is at work. And all the power of the universe is in play. 